Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading today is from Mark 7, 1 through 30. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his, his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever gets goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, good morning again. So, chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, we get to talk about one of our favorite uh, subjects, hygiene. And uh, I am sure that in this room there are many different uh, family traditions that go with, with hygiene, that maybe go a bit and beyond uh, public health and safety. I, I come from a very advanced family. When it comes to uh, hygiene practices, um, my, my dad, I think, is one of the uh, more unique in his uh, planning of how to, how to keep germs away. And, uh, you know, like you're never taught uh, how to walk across a, a hotel floor without getting germs on your feet. But in my family, we've been taught that if you walk on the sides of your feet kind of like this and keep your toes up, somehow or another that will keep the germs of a nasty hotel floor from uh, covering your feet. 
And I won't even tell you what you do in a public restroom. It is, it's best just to skip them, uh, really. Uh, if there's three hours till we're getting to the next uh, stop, best just to take the three hours in our family. Uh, so so I, am, uh, I am used to many different hygiene traditions, but if we, if we look at this text and we think that it's just this funny discussion about hygiene, I'm afraid that we miss the point. This text is really not about hygiene and being uh, uh, healthy at all. In fact, as we look at this chapter, we're going to discover that it is a critical chapter, a very important chapter in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel message. Because without the message that is given to us here in Mark chapter 7, we as Gentiles would have no gospel. We would have no good news if it were not for what we read in this passage right here. Let me give you some background of what is going on as we talk about these washings and clean food. We have to go back to the book of Leviticus, back to the 20th chapter, which is probably about seven or eight chapters after you're reading the Bible in a year plan has, has floundered because you've already had to read about hairs and all their different colors and you at some point probably have lost uh, your focus. But in Leviticus chapter 20, God reveals to his people why he set aside clean and unclean foods for his people. We're told in Leviticus 20, verses 24 through 26, I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make for yourselves. You'll not. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. You see what is going on in this discussion in this chapter is not talking about hygiene. It is talking about moral cleanness and moral separation. It is talking about the pursuit of holiness, the identity of being a true person of God. As Alexander, Desmond Alexander says in his commentary on the Pentateuch describing these laws, he says, For the Israelites, the animal world was structured in the same way as the human world. The clean and unclean animals parallel clean and unclean people i.e. Israelites and non-Israelites. Within the category of clean animals, two further classes may be observed, sacrificial and non-sacrificial. These correspond with the human classes of priestly and non-priestly. By restricting their diet to clean animals, the Israelites were reminded of their obligation to be a clean people, distinct from others. So you see what is going on here is not a description of how to make the food edible and not covered with germs, but how to be clean, how to be moral, how to be separated from the culture, from the peoples around them. Cleanliness refers to the moral condition of being clean before God. Those who were clean were close to God. Cleanliness is next to godliness. A horrible misreading of Scripture, but I guess uh, you can see where it comes from. It was to uh, be a grounds of justification. They are close to God because they keep themselves clean. It separated them from the nations. It kept Gentiles out because by nature they were unclean. They were not close to God. And so with these food laws, as, as arcane and maybe as uninteresting as they may seem to us, with these food laws, if they stay in place, there is no Savior for us. There is no Savior for the Gentiles. The Savior becomes a Savior simply for the Jews. But if we go a little bit deeper to understand this chapter, which is what Jesus wants us to do as we talk about the idea of cleanness, of our, of our uh, uh, holiness, we need to ask this question. Where does uncleanness, where does unholiness come from? Where does it come from? Do we... Uh, 
sin and therefore are sinners? Or are we sinners and therefore we sin? You see the vast difference between those two. Does our uncleanness, does our sinfulness come from outside or does our sinfulness come from inside? Those are vastly different understandings. And I would, I would wager that most of us probably operate with the idea that sinfulness comes from the outside and we pursue staying sinless by staying away from sinful things, right? staying away from contaminating things, from bad influences, and all of that is, is appropriate. But you see, when, what you think about the source of uncleanness determines your remedy, determines how you are going to deal with sin in this world. If it is from the outside, you're going to avoid. But Jesus, in this passage, reverses the source of uncleanness. He tells us that our uncleanness primarily comes from inside. That true uncleanness is a matter of the heart. As we're told in Matthew chapter 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Only those who are pure in heart shall see God. True cleanliness is a matter of the heart. It must be pure, it must be clean for it to see God. And so as we look at this passage, we're not looking at a passage about hand washing. We're looking at a passage that is talking about where does cleanliness come from? Where does righteousness come from? What makes us unclean? And as we go through this passage, Jesus is going to reveal what it means that we are sinful, what our condition of sinfulness means. It is important that we understand this passage then, otherwise we will, uh, if we do not, we will continue to pursue being clean, being righteous, being approved by God according to the wrong ways. So let us look carefully at this passage because it deals with the most important question for us. How do we make ourselves clean? How do we find cleanliness? We must understand first and foremost the source of our uncleanness, cleanliness, the source of our sinfulness. So let us look at this passage and discover what it means that we have the condition of sinfulness. And before we go on any further, I guess I should should start by asking, does anybody here um, not struggle with with sin? Is there anyone exempt from the, "I, I have sin, I've experienced sin, I know sin? Okay, then we're all on the same page. Where does that sinfulness come from? First thing that our condition of sinfulness means, we're going to see from this passage, is that our righteousness is vain. The first thing that we discover from our condition of sinfulness from this passage is that our righteousness is vain. Our righteousness is vain. And here we look at these first 13 verses of chapter 7. A little overview for us. So we have... Jesus, having just completed uh, uh, his ministry of healing, and uh, we come to the seventh chapter, and who is there to greet him? We see in verse 1, the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now, do we remember the scribes who have come from Jerusalem already? Have they shown up in, in Mark? Well, the last time we saw them, they came to start Uh, sharing the story that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan. That his entire power of ministry is unclean, dark, spiritual power. And and Jesus addressed them and and, uh, threatened them that they were uh, on the verge of, if not had already committed, the unforgivable sin, ascribing uh, uncleanness to the Holy Spirit. And so... Uh, we recognize these words, the scribes from Jerusalem, as ominous and threatening. The scribes from Jerusalem are coming up to test Jesus, to make a case against Jesus, to try and develop their argument against Jesus. They are not coming to be his followers. And we, we note that their issue is significant. They want to deal with the issue of washing hands and of cleanliness. And the reason for that is because the first century Jewish mindset recognized three particular things as representing the boundary markers of a true Jewish person. 
A true Jewish person observed the law of circumcision, observed the law of Sabbath observance, and observed the food laws, clean and unclean. And so those laws were what it meant to be truly Jew, truly a person of God. And in fact, it wasn't very hard for them to recognize that once you were within that boundary, the degree to which you were able to excel in that area has something to do with how holy you were. So when you go to the Old Testament and you look at the cleanliness issues, you don't run across washings. Uh, Washings only happen in the temple. But what is happening here is the Pharisees have developed a tradition of washing their hands for food that's taken from the marketplace because they would have been handled perhaps by Gentiles. But what seems to be happening here is that they have applied the, the principle of washing to just profane food as a means to develop a tradition to increase their holiness. So what we have here is the washing of hands from this food at the marketplace represents kind of next order holiness, the next step. They're not just clean, they're cleaner than clean. They're super clean. They're, uh, what's the, um, the bald guy that cleans the floors? Mr. Clean. They're Mr. Clean. That's what they're trying to be. And this is all based on their tradition. The word tradition is important for this discussion because tradition means that what they are talking about is not exactly from the Bible, but it's something that seemed good. Now, we need to make sure that we don't uh, misunderstand the word tradition here entirely. The problem with the traditions that were going on in this passage was, is seen in verse 9 of our passage. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. There are all kinds of traditions that we have that are not discussed in the Bible, but that don't have any effect on us being biblical. However, what Jesus is concerned about is that traditions were being developed and were being practiced by the Jews that were being held as more important than what the Scripture said. And when those uh, traditions conflicted with the Scripture, they held to the traditions. So what is being talked about here is not just traditions, like Christmas traditions, but traditions that are set up and against the authority of Scripture. And that is what Jesus is dealing with. He is dealing with traditions that do not come from the Bible, but had an appearance of goodness to them, which Jesus is now going to rebuke. Jesus comes to uh, this question, why are your disciples not washing their hands, and turns on the Pharisees and the scribes to rebuke them. He says, your traditions are vain about washing your hands. He kind of goes straight into conflict mode, right? Now, when he says traditions are vain, he is saying two things about their traditions. He's saying, one, they are merely external. And second, they are empty. They are void of value. So let's make sure we understand what he is saying here. In verses 6 and 7, let's look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, Well that Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, a passage that was talking about the vain worship practices 800 years ago, and is saying you were doing the exact same thing. Isaiah speaks these words to you because your heart is just like theirs. You are honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me in what you are doing. Jesus is pinpointing the whole mess of their tradition was to have the appearance, to have the external look, of righteousness and piety and holiness, when in fact, they are far from God. They are not close to God. Their heart is away from God. I mean, who are they having this conversation with? They're talking to Jesus. Why why aren't you following these traditions? He is the epitome of righteousness and cleanliness and moral propriety. And they're arguing that there is something suspicious about you and your disciples because you don't follow our traditions. So their heart is far from Jesus 
because they are committed to their tradition. Does that make sense? Their their commitment to tradition then was not a, a service of being close to God, but to elevate their self. They were doing. They had traditions that were above and beyond even the Word of God, and so because they followed those traditions, there was a little bit of "Look at me, I'm cleaner than clean." Now, I think it's important to maybe take a moment to think about this from a modern perspective. What do we really use to establish that, that we're good? I mean, we're not interested necessarily in the words clean and unclean. But we want to be good. Every single one of us wants to have the self-esteem of being good. So what do we pursue for good? To say, you know what, I know I'm a good person. Some of you know that you're a good person because you've made a lot of money. I mean, if you weren't a good person, you wouldn't be able to make money. Your, your pursuit of wealth is a way to validate, I'm a good person. I've done it right. I've succeeded. Some of you may look at career advancement. I know I'm a, I am good because I am better than all these other people. I have been promoted to the top. Some of us may find our family as the source of goodness. I know I am good because my family is not a wreck like yours. My, my, my kids are all happy and, and my, my marriage is great, so the reason I know that I am good is because I'm doing this right. And we feel good. We feel good. Every year of anniversary makes us a little bit better than all those who flamed out, perhaps. Patriotism. We are good because we live in the best country. Beauty. Popularity. Our GPA. All of these things become things that justify us, that make us feel good, that make us feel right, that give us a sense of standing. And not a single one of them are from the Bible. I mean, the Bible speaks on all of these different things, and none of them are necessarily bad. But when we fall upon, I make a lot of money, I support my family, I'm a good American, I have a beautiful family, I'm popular, as the reason why we're okay and good, we are committing the same thing in our heart that the Pharisees and the scribes are committing by pursuing the washing of hands and couches and all these other things to be cleaner than clean. But it's external. It's external, and it means nothing without a heart that is close to God. All of your goodness means nothing without a heart that is close to God. And that is why the second part of what is vain about their righteousness comes into play. It is empty. When Jesus turns, he talks about the, the, the way that their traditions have actually voided out the word of God because they have the commandment, the fifth commandment, honor your mother and your father, which has a death penalty attached to it. It's very serious. And by their traditions of saying, well, if you want to be really righteous, take all that money that you were going to use to help your parents when they got old and say, that's to God. And actually, it's still in your bank account, so it's not going to hurt that much. <laughs> you can still, you know, you can use it as you need to. But when your mom and your dad say, can you help me, I can't make the bills meet, or, or whatever, you say, well, I, I, I'm sorry, in my pursuit of righteousness, I am not able to give that money to you because I have given it to a higher, more beautiful, more appropriate end. I've given it all to God. And so here they are taking their tradition and voiding the word of God, voiding the fifth commandment. And Jesus is using this as an example to show that their tradition was voiding the word of God. Their commitment to other things that they thought were good or right, they were putting above the word of God. Now, do we do that? Certainly not, right? We do not put our traditions above the word of God. We do not put our own sense of what is right and good and worthy of doing above the word of God. Or maybe we do. In our 
present climate, there seems to be a long-standing and approved tradition of slandering our political opponents, of demonizing their character and their goodness and their fitness of, in, in, the, in the class of humanity. And we, we do that to be patriotic or Republican or Democrat, to succeed and excel in that. And in so doing, what do we set aside? Love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor. James chapter 3 says this about our tongues. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. I think there is a, a habit in our American patriotism, perhaps, of a tradition. This is just one example. But our heart is used to voiding the word of God by pursuing other traditions. Now here's the real thing. What was going on with these scribes and Pharisees with the washing of hands and the washing of couches and all of these other things that were the tradition of the elders? It was their pursuit of righteousness. It was their pursuit of being cleaner than clean, closer to God than their neighbor. But what actually is happening in this passage, they are showing themselves to be far from God, their heart to be away from God, their, their desire to obey God to actually be null and void. And so here's what happens in their pursuit of traditions for their own righteousness. Their righteousness, which is apart from God, is ultimately vain. Apart from God, even our best deeds, our best works, our best acts of charity are filthy. That's what's being said. If it is apart from God, it is empty and void. Now, there are some here who hear the gospel every week, hear that they need to hold on to Jesus, but deep down inside of you, you have this other narrative that says, I'm okay, I'm good enough, and if God doesn't actually accept me, he's in a world of hurt, because most people would be excluded from heaven if I were not there. So I'm betting there's a curve on the last day, and that I'm on the right side of the curve. I'm good. When I really sit down and think about myself, I've got a good job, I've got a good family, I've got a good marriage, I live in a good country, I am good. But here's the thing. That's not good at all. That's vanity. At the heart of what makes you think you are good, at the wellspring of that thought of being good is pride. And it's gross. And it makes it hideous to God. And filthy. And so you want to stand in front of God with all of your splendor and all of your goodness and all of the things that you have done with a heart that has always been hard and cold towards God and think that he's going to say, wow, you rocked this world. Welcome in. No. He's going to say, your heart was cold Your motives were evil and laced with pride. Depart from me. Your traditions are vain. Your pursuit of righteousness apart from me is vain and empty. How many times have we heard an atheist say that they can be good without God? Simplify the equation. Take God out. I can be good without God. What is that statement? But goodness for spite. I will show you I can be good without you. That is based on spite. Now, I have never read a virtue list that claims spite to be a virtue. If you are being good to spite God, you are preparing your righteousness as evidence for judgment. Because every single one of them involves the middle finger to God. So quit expecting your goodness and your moral beauty, which you evaluate as good, to be anything but filthy rags if they keep you far from God. 
What does Isaiah tell us in uh, chapter 64, verse 6? He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Understand this. Your good works, your righteousness, if they are done apart from God, they are vain, they are worthless, and when you stand before God with them, they will judge you. Be warned of Jesus' rebuke that a heart that is far from God is not righteous, but is one under judgment. So when we recognize the condition of our sinfulness, the first thing Jesus wants us to understand is that means our righteousness is vain. But second, he wants us to recognize that that means our depravity is radical. Depravity is just a synonym for sinfulness, but it's a gross word. And I want you to get used to the reality of sinfulness. It's gross. So we call it depravity because it's depraved. And depravity is a word that we need to continue to use. Our sinfulness is revealed here uh, that our depravity is radical. And here we look at verses 14 to the 23. Jesus has now left the scene with the Pharisees and the scribes, and he is talking to the crowd. He gathers the crowd now to teach more on the principle of clean and unclean. And the shocking thing that Jesus does is he's not talking about hand-washing anymore. He is now talking about where does the source of uncleanness come from. He's saying that we cannot make ourselves righteous by our deeds, and now he's going to tell us why. Because sin is not outside in. Sin is inside out. They were not made sinners. They were not made disqualified from God because they ate unclean food. They are made disqualified from God because their hearts are impure and unclean. Food, he says, is not the problem. Look again at verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus is now saying food is not the problem. Here's what the problem is. Verse 18 Uh, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declares, all foods clean. It's not food that is causing your uncleanness. Your uncleanness comes from a much deeper and more difficult part to address. And that's where we go in verse 21. Verse 21 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is throwing away the question of food to address the real source of uncleanness, and he says that the problem is our heart. That's where uncleanness and sin comes from. And so when he says it is from our heart, he is saying that our depravity, our sinfulness, our fallenness is radical. It goes to the very root, the very core of who we are. It is who we are. We sin because we are sinners. It's underneath everything. Everything that we do comes from a heart that is unclean and impure. This is the unanimous testimony of Scripture. Genesis 8.21, after God cleaned the earth with the flood... He looked at the family of Noah, the only family on the face of the earth, the the, the ones who are our ancestors. And he looked at that family and he said of humankind, the intention of man's heart 
is evil from youth. The heart's intention, it's bent, is evil from its youth. Psalm 51.5, where David prays his great repentant psalm, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What is he saying? He's not saying that, that having sex and making babies is sinful. He is saying that into our nature, into the very moment of our conception, is a sin nature that is given to us. We are born depraved. We are conceived with a sin nature. The moment that we have will within ourselves, we will show that. If any of you need evidence of this, you can volunteer for the nursery. Those are the most selfish kids, and they're mine. (laughs) So I'm not talking about yours necessarily. But if they need to punch somebody to get the toy that they want, they don't think a second about it. Augustine said the only thing that keeps babies from murdering us is they can't get their hands around our necks. But they would if they could. And if you've held a baby, you know they've thought that. They've looked at you at times and said, just give me the strength. (laughs) John 8.34, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, Jesus takes it, again, he takes it away. We are not sinners because we have sinned. We sin because we are sinners. Everyone who practices sin is a practitioner of sin because their master, their owner, the one that they obey is sin. They are a slave of sin. It is our nature. It goes all the way down into our core It is our heart. The point here is that we are not sinful because of what we have done. That's external. We are sinful because of what we are. And so when Jesus reads this this list of sins, let me read them again. For out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Let me say, first of all, who's still innocent? I mean, how can you live in America without loving sensuality or envy or coveting? But that's not even so much the point. It's not how many boxes on that list do you check? How many times did Jesus just declare you guilty? It's something far worse. It's not how many of these you have done. It's how many at one time or another in the secrets of your heart you wanted to. There's a want to in our heart to do things like this. And we may restrain ourselves. We may chasten ourselves. We may, in the external appearance of others, reject these, but in our heart, when we're unguarded, there's a want to. And where does that want to come from? We all go to the movies. The movies search our hearts. I mean, how many times are you in a movie and you're, you're rooting for the bank robber? Because you'd love to be rich. Or you're watching two beautiful actors kiss, and for a second you're like, I hope they go all the way. How many times do we watch a, a beautiful person and we just wonder, what do they look like without their clothes on? How many times do we look at another family and be like, you know what, I really wish... I had that husband. Just for a second. You turn back, you go back to your own humdrum marriage, and you say, we're going to make the most of it, but the want to. The want to is there. And that's the point. The core of our being wants to sin. 
It's not how much. It's that it wants to. We sin because we are sinners. We are wicked on the inside. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Look at that again. The heart is deceitful above all things. The highest thing of the heart, the truest thing of the heart, is it's a liar. And the number one thing it lies to you about is don't worry, you're okay. You're a good person. That's the first lie. And every other lie it tells you is nobody will see it. Go ahead and do it. Nobody can see your imagination. Enjoy it. Above all things, it is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What this means is there is no spark, no sliver, no untainted place in your human constitution that is free from sin and able to do something good. The idea that there is this little sliver, this little area of uh, unstainedness that allows you to make a good choice is not found in Scripture. The scripture says the entirety of you from the core to the outside is depraved. You are wicked because the very core of you stains everything with wicked desire. The question is just very simple. Do you accept the scripture's verdict on your condition? Do you accept that your depravity is radical, that it goes all, re- all the way to the core. Because only if you recognize that and you accept that will you turn to seek God's grace alone. You will get off the treadmill. You will get off the life of self-performance. You will get off the external acts of righteousness and vanity, and you will fall upon God in humility asking for his grace alone. Because if your depravity goes all the way to the heart, then there is nothing within you that can do anything good and certainly nothing in you that can make you savable. You must be saved. And so that is the third condition of our sinfulness. It means that we depend on grace alone. We depend on grace alone. Alone, And so where does Jesus take us after he has dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees and their traditions of cleanliness? And then after he has talked about the regulations of clean food and unclean food and abolishes them, where does he go? He goes to the place and to the people that were excluded in Leviticus chapter 20. The reason that the food laws existed was to say, I am not one of the nations. You are special. You are set apart. You are not a Gentile. And Jesus then shows how radical is his ministry that he goes to the uncleanest of people to show that grace alone is able to save. And it's the only way anyone can be saved. In verse 19, Jesus declared, All foods clean. Now, you might be asking the question, How does Jesus get to declare all foods clean if he just rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes for making a tradition that voided the word of God? Because we just saw in Leviticus 20 that the word of God says there are unclean foods. How in the world can Jesus not commit the the, the transgression that he accused the scribes and the Pharisees to? How can Jesus void the word of God? He, He is doing that. He is saying that part of the word of God has come to an end. There is only one way that Jesus can do that and not be violating God's will. And that is if he is speaking with divine authority. You see, God sent Jesus to fulfill what the clean and unclean laws only pointed to. The clean and unclean laws pointed out the problem of uncleanness. 
until Christ came to be the fountain of cleanness that takes away all the filth and makes the heart pure. So when Jesus declares all foods clean, he can only be taken uh, on that uh, word if you understand and accept him as divinely authoritative. So he has now left the Jews and he has gone to Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. That's Gentile country. He is doing that deliberately to show that the abolishment of these food laws has completely removed the dividing wall of clean and unclean that separates Jew and Gentile. Now God's people can include all who call upon the name of the Lord, regardless of where they are born, regardless of where they have come from. Jesus moves into Gentile territory. Now this passage is a harsh passage. It seems very rude. Uh, this woman comes desperate and asks for her, her uh, daughter to be healed, and Jesus kind of dismisses her. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Why does he say that? I think he is doing something with irony. I think he is showing that the day of separating Jew and Gentile is over by showing how callous and how lost the understanding of God's purposes in Scripture have become. He is parodying the viewpoint of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, R.T. France says this about this passage. Jesus appears like the wise teacher who allows and indeed incites his pupil to mount a victorious argument against the foil of his own reluctance. As a result, the reader is left more vividly aware of the reality of the problem of Jew-Gentile relations and of the importance of the step Jesus here takes to overcome it. The women's victory in the debate is a decisive watershed as a result of which the whole future course of the Christian movement is set not on the basis of Jewish exclusivism, but of sharing the children's bread. So what does it mean when we recognize that we are unclean from the heart? It means that we can't get underneath our root. We can't fix it. It means we come to God with nothing. We must depend upon grace alone. And that is what the woman says when she answers Jesus. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from the floor. Being related to a dog was a totally humiliating thing in this culture. Dogs are scavengers. They are totally dependent. They bring nothing. They're just takers. And the woman said, I'm a dog. I know I have no claim on you. I have nothing that I can bring to you. I can't barter with you. I can't argue with you. I can only ask. Let a crumb from the table fall to the floor, and I will eat it and be satisfied. You see, she has forsaken any standing that she has with God, and she is there on grace alone. Contrast that with the scribes who come to judge the ways of Jesus. The woman comes with nothing. She comes begging. If we are here pursuing our own righteousness, our own sense of goodness... We miss Jesus as the source of all righteousness. He is somebody to argue with, to have dinner conversation with. But when you recognize that your righteousness is completely corrupted because you're corrupt to the core, you come as the woman with nothing and you just beg for his grace. What does she do? She puts her faith in Jesus alone. She knows that he alone can take care of her. He begs her. He knows that with Jesus, a little crumb is enough to take care of, his da- of her daughter. The woman knows her condition. She sees it clearly, and she re- receives salvation. And that salvation is immediate. When she put her faith in him alone, she was experienced the healing of her daughter that very minute. So you see, when we come to him with grace alone, we receive grace and all the grace that we need. But when we come to him with our self-righteousness, we receive an opponent 
one who will humble us until we receive his verdict. The condition of our, sin, of our sinfulness means our righteousness is vain, our depravity is radical, and we must depend on grace alone. Let me then ask you, what is the condition of your heart? Where is your heart? Is it near to God or is it committed to its own traditions and its own ways of making itself feel good? That's hopeless. We cannot make our hearts clean. They are sinful to the root. They stain every good thing we do. But God can go deeper than our hearts. He can give us a new heart. His grace goes underneath it all. He is able to make us clean and to give us a new heart that knows him and loves him. He is able to make us a new creation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And God tells us in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the only way of salvation. It is to call upon and depend upon God's grace alone in Christ alone. Are you trusting in his grace alone through Jesus to save you? Come as the Canaanite woman just believing in him. And that very hour, he will make you clean. In him, we become pure in heart. In him, we are brought near to God to enjoy him forever. And in him, we receive the blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.